Last week, Pastor Paul began the study in the book of Colossians, and we shall continue today looking to this letter and seeing what God has for us. Before I read the text, just about a few weeks ago, around Christmas time, I came across the article that was published in one of the British newspapers, Arrested for Prayer. When I shared the article with my children, they were shocked. How can it be in such a civilized world somebody would be arrested for prayer? And the author of this article put a few details, saying that a, a person, elderly lady, she was standing across the abortion clinic, just standing without any signs, staying, standing quietly. And officials arrested her for praying. And the author concluded, apparently the officials believe in the power of prayer. <laughs> I want to ask you, Eastridge family, do we believe in the power of prayer? I pray so, and I trust that after today's sermon, you not only will believe in the power of prayer, but you will practice the prayer. Let us read the text that is before us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. It is interesting that this prayer specifically came from a man who also was arrested. Yes, he prays from prison. And I want you to notice that the content of this prayer, this is really going to be the main emphasis and main focus for us, what the Apostle Paul is praying for and what he is not praying for. And let us recognize for a moment, if we as Israel's family would truly believe in the power of prayer and if we would truly pray the way Apostle Paul is praying, how the life of this congregation would be. I want you for a moment to put the sanctified imagination. Oftentimes we desire to have a godly life. Oftentimes we encourage others to pursue godliness. But do we devote time to pray for that end? The Apostle Paul, as we learned last week, he never met these believers. He never came in personal contact with them. Yet he learned about this church through the ministry, as we read in the verse 7. He learned from the Epaphras. Epaphras was a, a young fellow who came to know Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus. Acts 19 tells us when Paul ministered in Ephesus, during two years of his ministry, the entire region of Asia heard the gospel. Somewhere in that region was the young fellow by name Epaphras. 
Probably he was part of the discipleship group of the Apostle Paul. But he took the gospel back to the city of Colossae and he ministered there. And as a result of his ministry, the church was planted. I want to take a moment to encourage those of you who teach Sunday school, adventure club, you lead youth ministry, discipleship groups. You do not know who is that apathos in your midst. May the Lord strengthen you to continue to sow the seed that one day that Epaphras will take the gospel to a different city, to a different place, so the church would be planted and Christ would bring to his fold many. As Paul learns from this fellow, Epaphras, about the life of the church, in response to those news he is praying, I want you to notice that he is not praying because of some troubles. In fact, the motivation and the whole objective of Paul praying for this church specifically because he heard the great news. These believers, they received the gospel and the truth of the gospel was manifested in their life. In which way? They showed love toward one another. Colossae, by the time, was a rather insignificant city. If you think about the Seattle, Bellevue, maybe they are prominent cities. Kent, well, not many people in the world know about Kent. <laughs> Nevertheless, in divine providence, it is Kent that God chose to plant here at Eastridge Baptist Church. It is Colossae that God chose to plant Colossae Baptist Church. God does not necessarily look at the geography the way we consider and yet, he brings people from different walks of life. As Pastor Paul mentioned last week, Colossae was established, and by this time, this church is probably seven to ten years old. Just, we are just a little bit older than they are. They have embraced Christ, they have embraced the gospel of Christ, the grace of God, and they have put into practice the truth of biblical gospel. And at the same time, as we will learn a little bit later, there are some problems that would come in the life of the church, and that is true in any church. So Paul is praying. Paul is praying that one of the ways the Christians would address any problems when they grow into spiritual maturity. This is precisely what he's praying here. So in this passage, we will glean five essential truths that instruct us to pray for Christ-centered living. We're going to learn five essential truths that will instruct us to pray for Christ-centered living. What are these truths? In verse 9, we'll find first truth. Pray for spiritual knowledge. Paul writes, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. We may ask yourself, how come Paul could minister, could meet various groups of people, <clears throat> he could travel from region to region. At the same time, he says here that he prays for the believers without ceasing. How can he put on his calendar all this prayer time for these believers? In fact, if we read other letters, he says to other believers the same truth. 
he tells to the Thessalonians that he prays for them unceasingly, for the believers in Philippi. What does that mean? Especially when we are commanded to pray without ceasing. What can we learn from Paul? I think it is important for us to understand when the scripture gives one command does not cancel all the other commands. But it, it, is, it calls us to leave that specific command in light of everything else. So praying without ceasing, it does not mean that you have to cancel all your activities in life and just devote 24-7 to prayer. Well, if it does not mean that, what does it mean? It is a, it is a truth that points to someone's walk with Christ, someone's walk with God, someone's devotion to God. Somebody who lives with their focus and their heart full on God. Every step of that person is in awareness that they exist and they move and they breathe in the presence of God. And they recognize that relationship for themselves and they recognize that dynamic for other people. Yes, Paul, in this case, he was under the house arrest in Rome and yet he is praying. It is his attitude of prayer and reverence before God that he prays for these Christians nonstop, or I should say without ceasing. It is his devotional frame of mind. He goes about God's business in a God's way. He intercedes periodically as he learns about these Christians and as he thinks about them, he comes before God. He lifts them up in prayer in humble submission and dependence. This is exactly what Scripture calls us to do. As we recognize various prayer needs and as we specifically instructed in this text to pray for spiritual knowledge, beloved, every time we think of Eastridge, every time we think of specific individuals who are part of this church, or every time we think of specific individuals who, is not, who are not part of this church, First, we want to pray, understanding their relationship to God. Where are they are? Do they know Christ? Are they redeemed by Christ? If they are saved, do they grow in Christ? Do they manifest that love of Christ and life of Christ through them? So Paul is praying here, and we continue to read in verse 9. <clears throat> the details of his prayer. He tells us, we pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is truly the priority of the, his prayer. And we can see in different passages and different um, letters, his prayer for the church and for the believers is really spiritually minded. In this case, he wants the believers to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And that knowledge of God's will would be manifested or would be characterized with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what does it mean to be filled with, God's, with the knowledge of God's will? This is a rather common term that we find in the New Testament. To be filled means to be made complete to, feel, to be filled to the top where there is no room for anything else. For instance, in Luke chapter 5, verse 7, we read 
of the few Galilean fishermen. They were experts in their trade who went to the sea and they got so much fish that their boats were filled to the point that they began sinking. There was overwhelming amount of fish. A little bit later in Luke chapter 5, verse 26, we read of the crowd's response when they witnessed Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic man and he restored him to life. They were amazed. They were filled to the point that they couldn't do anything else but glorify God. We read other instances, for example, Jesus in Nazareth in his hometown and when he became to proclaim the good news and the fulfillment of the prophecies, he is that fulfillment. Um, people were not very pleased. It says that they were filled with rage. They were filled and nothing else moved them except the rage, anger. So to be filled means to have that controlling influence to be filled to the top, to be saturated, dominated, to have the total control but by something that fills you. So in this case, the Apostle Paul is praying that believers in Colossae would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the priority. That Christians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. In order for them to obey God's will, they need to know God's will, and they need to be filled so that feeling, that controlling influence of, in their life would be manifested. For example, we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul exhorts church in Ephesus, do not be drunk with wine, or we can say do not be filled with wine, where people came under the influence of wine, but be, feel, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let your life be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. In this case, he's praying that believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So they would know God's desires and purposes as they are manifested in God's sovereign will. And also they would know God's commandments, specific prescriptions as they revealed to us specifically in the scriptures for us to live out every day. Beloved, we gain that knowledge through regular and systematic study of God's Word. Our purpose is to know the mind of Christ, to know the mind of God. That's why we read from Genesis through Revelation, both Old Testament and New Testament, because in this book, it's revealed to us the mind of God, and the will of God. John MacArthur, in his text, on this specific passage, he wrote, having the knowledge of God's word control our minds in the key to righteous living, is the key to righteous living. What controls your thoughts will control your behavior. Self-control is a result of mind control, which depends on knowledge. Knowledge of God's word will lead to all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We oftentimes, beloved, try to fix somebody's behavior. We live in a world where it's a behavior modification. The Bible instructs us very clearly 
that somebody's behavior is direct result of what they are controlled by. If they are controlled by the truth of God's word, they will walk in obedience to God's word because that's what fills and that's what controls a person. And if somebody manifests something else, it gives us the clue what they're controlled by. So how can somebody be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Well, the answer is really simple. You stay after the service and go to Sunday school. (laughs) You go to the fellowship groups. You go and learn God's truth. Open it on your own daily, periodically. Read it in order to know it. I know oftentimes we want to read so we can feel elevated. But before we can feel elevated, sometimes we need to know it. Yes, we need to memorize it. We need to understand and we need to wrestle with the scriptures. And this is what Paul Gilles explains to us here as he modifies this type of knowledge, knowledge with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says, this spiritual in nature, this knowledge, beloved, is not intellectual, simply. You cannot go and receive a four-year degree in order to gain this knowledge. This knowledge is given to us by the Spirit of God who opens to us our eyes and explains and leads us through the truth, through the scriptures. This knowledge, this spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what is spiritual wisdom then? It is ability to discern the truth and make the principle out of it. And understanding is really to put into practice. So what would be a good example? Well, let's look in verse 9. Here in verse 9, we read, For this reason, also since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What would be the spiritual principle that we can draw out of this text? Pray for spiritual knowledge. This is exactly what the preachers do. They draw this principle out of the text and they preach it. This is what this text instructs us to do. So how do we apply it? Well, next time the prayer requests come for someone, yes, we pray for their needs, and we include this principle. We pray for that they would continue to grow in spiritual knowledge, that their heart would be saturated with God's truth, that they would know how to deal in that specific circumstance. I think one of the pastors from Southern California, he gave a really helpful example how do we apply this practically as we study the scriptures. It's, it's example 10, and some of you probably heard it. Then, eternal and now. So whenever we open the text of scriptures, we want to think, what does this text said specifically to that audience then? What is the eternal truth in that text? Eternal truth that carries over regardless where you live. How do I walk in light of this truth now? So Paul prays here 
and exhorts us that we may pray for spiritual knowledge. And he continues in, in verse 10, pray for godly living. Notice that he is not praying without the objective. He has a very clear purpose in mind, and he instructs us to pray in the same way. He prays that believers in Colossae and believers at Eastridge may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Pray for godly living. Oftentimes we want to see godly lives around us, and we need to pray for that. I think in the recent sermons we have heard a lot, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but what does it mean, godliness? And I think that this entire phrase can be summarized in this one word, godliness. Godliness is a submission of every single area of my life into obedience to Christ. Either it's a family life, marriage life, money life, work life, student life, entertainment life, whatever name it. Everything is submitted into the obedience to Christ. That's exactly what Paul instructs us. As he's praying for the believers, he wants to see those believers continue to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord. So their daily life, not just their Sunday worship when they all come looking very spiritual, but even Monday when they have to wake up and go to work. Even Friday when it is difficult to work. We want to be pleasing to the Lord in all respects, in, in all manner. We want to cultivate a lifestyle that would be pleasing to the Lord. I want to ask you, who do you try to please? Who is the boss of your life? I know you would answer on Sundays, Christ Jesus, but in other, any other days when trials and difficulties come to our life. Paul instructs us to pray for godly living, that as we walk, we would live in obedience, understanding that we're always in the presence of Christ. This is precisely what we as parents instruct our children. We may not always see them, but God would always see them. They need to know that. He's always there. So our lifestyle would be consistent with the gospel, would be consistent with who Christ is. It would be fully pleasing to him. It would be pleasing to him in all respects, in each and every way. It is the sole preoccupation in our life as Christians is to please Christ. This is precisely what Paul would address this church a little bit later. If we are to open chapter 3 of Colossians, look with me in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Wives, be subject to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parent in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Slaves, 
in all things, obey those who are masters. Who are your masters? On earth, not with external service, but as those who, as those who merely pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for man. And here's the challenge for us, because we understand this is not just. I'm not going to be compensated for this. This is not right. Can't go extra mile because they always will expect, expect, expect from me. Well, Paul continues and says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Beloved, don't threat about your compensation here. You may not come. But Christ will restore it. He will reward you. Because your life in all the areas is to be pleasing to him. So when we are facing conflicts, I know it's a not a pleasant word, but it's a biblical word. Who are we trying to please? And what if those conflicts happen in the ministry with a fellow brother or sister? What if those conflicts happen at Eastridge? Who do we try to please, beloved? Do we seek to please the Lord? When we disagree with a brother or sister, when we work through those disagreements? Or do we just lay it aside and say, okay, 90% of my life is pleasing to the Lord. Well, well enough. It is not well enough. Because God expects us to walk in a manner that would be consistent with the gospel. It would be worthy of the Lord. And it would, we would be pleasing to him in all respects. So how can we see this life that is pleasing to the Lord? Paul gives us a few examples. First, as we pray for a godly life, we want to see and pray that life would bear fruit, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The salvation tree always bears fruit, beloved. Salvation tree is never planted as a decorative tree. It blooms but does not produce any fruit. No, salvation tree always bears fruit. And it may be a fruit that is righteousness or fruit of the Spirit. So as we walk through life, as we walk with Christ, the reflection of our life is Christ. In our responses, in our attitudes, in our work, and he continues and says, not only bearing the fruit in, all, in every good work, but also increasing in the knowledge of God. Continue to pursue spiritual maturity. In other words, this phrase could be translated increasing by the means of knowing God. As we grow in knowing God, as we grow to know him, the result is spiritual maturity. This is exactly the purpose for the local church. God has placed in any local church pastors and teachers who would instruct the congregation in the Word of God with the expectation that we would grow into the image of Christ, into the mature man. 
into the complete person in Christ. This is exactly what Paul lays for us in terms of his philosophy of ministry here in Colossians chapter 1. Look, just, just scroll down to, to the end of chapter 1, verse 28. He says, We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is exactly the philosophy of ministry of this congregation. We proclaim Christ in order to present every man complete in Christ. No, they will not be perfect, but they will continue to pursue that spiritual maturity until the day when Christ comes and takes us home or until we see him face to face. So pray for spiritual knowledge. Pray for godly living. Thirdly, pray for divine enablement. Beloved, it's much needed for us to pray for divine enablement. When we read through all the commandments of the scriptures and understand the expectation that God has for us, we must pray for godly, for divine enablement. And this is exactly what Paul is praying in verse 11. He writes, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. In other words, being strengthened. Notice that this is a present and yet passive. Something that uh, is available to us as Christians on the ongoing basis. This is the supply of strength that we all have. Being made strong, being made able and capable. Beloved, the source for our Christian walk is not in us. Not in us individually, not in us collectively. We do not inherently bring the righteous life to the table. This is external source. It is God who is that source of our true spiritual living. And we must pray for this divine enablement. Now I know we often try, we try to run this marathon race until the first corner. And then we collapse because we try and we rely on ourselves. How can we do that? By not praying. The simple act of praying is really acknowledgement that we are dependent on God. We need him. We need his strength and his resource. Now, how great is that resource? Paul says being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. This is a God himself who is the energizer of our Christian walk, energizer of our Christian growth, energizer of our Christian maturity. God himself. You remember the Apostle Paul in his ministry, um, he was in rather difficult circumstances. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he was pleading with the Lord. He was pleading because he was experiencing a thorn in his flesh. A messenger of Satan was tormented him. So he was imploring the Lord three times. 
And the Lord answered to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weaknesses. In weakness, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Beloved, we need to remember that God's power is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Yes, when we are very weak, His grace is sufficient. And we rely on His grace, rely on all-sufficient Christ to carry us through whatever circumstances we have to go through. How do we receive this strength and power? Well, we appropriate it by faith. We receive it by faith. If you read Hebrews 11, the example of all those spiritual hearers, they were men and women like we are, broken vessels, and yet they walked by faith, trusting God every step of the way. Just about two weeks ago, Brother Lance was preaching and reminding us from John 15, where Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't accomplish anything. We must abide in Christ. We must depend on Christ to grow in Christ. So Paul says that the strength of God is going to be manifested in, life, in us when we practically facing various challenges. And he says here in verse 11, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. This divine enablement is, uh, is really dearly needed for all of us because when we are placed in the circumstances where we have to be steadfast or to persevere, it's really a, a term about our circumstances in life when the difficulties are laid upon our shoulders and we have to make those steps. We need to keep going, recognizing that we are not on our own. We have to persevere, keep going. Charles Spurgeon once said that by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. Yes, we have to persevere. And we also need to be patient. And patience is really a term that speaks about our relationship with people. It's the way we respond to people without complaining or being irritated. It is opposite to rage or revenge. We do not blow up when the heat goes up, beloved. That's what means patience. And I want you to notice the last word in this verse, joyously. I know that we can persevere. We can bite our tongue. We can try to be patient. But to do it joyously, that's too much. And that's precisely the point. You need the power of Christ to live it out. You need his energy, his might. So how do we face any circumstances, any good or bad reports that come to our life joyously? Our focus is in Christ. Our inner confidence, the bedrock of our soul is on Christ. In Christ alone. We are not moved by any challenges. 
or any difficulties that we may see. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 is probably children's favorite verse in Adventure Club. Rejoice always. I think you can score on Wednesday. Very easy. But putting into practice that verse, it takes a life. Because when Monday comes around, beloved, either letter we receive or unexpected bill comes in the mail. Yeah, I know you wish that that bill would go to your neighbor's house and it still comes to your mailbox. What is our response? Joyously or living that be rejoicing always means to have that inner confidence in God. It is a deliberate response that focuses on God's grace, on sufficiency of God and His promises to us. And we do that by faith. We know that His resources are fully sufficient. He has demonstrated that to us. And if we doubt, we need to go back to the Scriptures and read through, through, from Genesis through Revelation and observe God's resume, that He is faithful to His people. He is faithful to you and me. So we learn here that we need to pray for Christ-centered living. First, to pray for spiritual knowledge. Second, pray for godly living. Third, pray for divine enablement. Fourthly, praise for eternal inheritance. It's very interesting that Paul changes the, uh, the dynamic of his prayer from petition to praise. In verse 12, 13, and 14, he writes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Some of your translations may say, who has qualified us, who has qualified you to share. Uh, this is uh, two good translations. Which one is correct? The answer is yes. I probably would go with the New American Standard. Um, but they both fit here well. And I think for re the reason why I would say us is more preferred reading, at least to me, because Paul is shifting the whole focus here in this last section of his prayer. He's sh shifting on praise, and he includes himself as well here. I, I want you to notice, even though pa Pastor Paul, he spent the entire sermon last week on the subject of thanksgiving. Beloved, it is not enough. But Paul, concise, uh, in a very concise way, writes to us here, the nature of this thanksgiving, it comes from the heart of the redeemed person. The, the focus and motivation for thanksgiving is our salvation. Everything that we received in Christ, and he's going to, in a very brief format, explain to us in verses 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father. I want you to notice that before we didn't have Father, before we were disqualified. Now, because of Christ, we have Father. We are adopted children into God's family. And Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What is that inheritance? It's eternal life. 
And what does it mean to qualify? It simply means to give them a title, a legal document. If you own a piece of property, you, you own a deed of the trust. Maybe I'm not saying correctly. You have a title. You have a deed. That's the word. Uh, so to have eternal life, God has given you a position and he has given you a title. You have a portion in eternal life. He has qualified you. That's why we need to give thanks. Beloved, we praise for this eternal inheritance. It is Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. How did God qualify us? Well, verses 13 and 14 answer with our last point. Praise for God's deliverance. Notice in verses 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, we praise God for his deliverance, for his rescue operation. To deliver or to rescue, it means to draw to himself. He drew, drew us to himself. Now, in order to do that, and I want you to see that really the power play in this verse, in verse uh, 13, that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, he rescued us from one powerhouse and placed us in a different powerhouse. And how can it happen? How can it be accomplished? If you remember, Jesus was once accused that he was accomplishing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. And in Mark 3, we read Jesus' response. He says, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Paul uses this analogy and says that God rescued us from the domain, from the authority, uh, from the power of the sin and Satan, from under the jurisdiction. To be under someone's domain, it means to carry their passport. If you have U.S. passport, you are under the United States domain. It is the place where you pay taxes. It is, that means you are under their jurisdiction. We once were under the domain of darkness, a place of chaos, evil, and judgment. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that we were under the influence of the prince of this world, and by nature we were children who would inherit the wrath of God. And yet, God rescued us. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, moved us across the border into the kingdom of his beloved son. It was the extraction operation. He extracted us and transferred us. I want you to see here that there are only two kingdoms. I know we love democracy, but there are no democracies in the spiritual world. There are two kingdoms, two realms, two powers. 
Either you're in a domain of darkness or you are in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this morning, under what kingship are you? Who is your king? Paul in the book of Romans says that to whom we obey, we are under their rule. If we obey and do the will of the sin, as sinners, we are under the domain of darkness. If we obey Christ and do the will of Christ, we are under the reign of Christ. I urge you, if you are not under the domain of Christ, to seek to be rescued today. You must be rescued. Notice that this is, doesn't happen on your own. You cannot transfer yourself. You must be rescued. So how can you be delivered? Paul answers in verse 14 for us. This deliverance comes to us because of Jesus Christ who have redeemed us and brought the forgiveness of our sins. The term redemption is really a term where someone is set free. He is purchased. His liberty is purchased. His freedom is bought. And there is none other but Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, who purchased us with his own blood. He lived a perfectly righteous life, and he gave that life up in exchange for ours. He redeemed us. He purchased us. And I want you to notice that Jesus Christ paid the price not to Satan, as some think. He paid the price to God the Father. As Romans 3 tells us, so God can be both judge and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. It gives God the Father the legal authority to, to grant us the redemption because the price of our release or freedom was paid in full. It is complete. It was paid once and for all. So that's on the basis of our redemption and the blood of Christ we receive the forgiveness. God forgives and cancels our debt because of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read the summary of this. Well, Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God treated Jesus the way we deserve to be treated so that he might treat us as he is if he would treat Jesus. This is a great rescue that God has given to us. He rescued us and he's worthy of praise. So Paul concludes this prayer with this praise. Here in this brief prayer, beloved, this is a one-sentence prayer. Our prayers don't have to be long to be thoughtful and deep, but they surely require a lot of prayers for us to think about 
Christ-centered living. So as we learn in this text, we are instructed to pray for spiritual knowledge, pray for godly living, pray for divine enablement, praise for eternal inheritance, and praise for God's deliverance. And you may ask, but who is this God's son? I'm glad that you ask. Come next Sunday, you'll learn more. Let us pray. Father God, we are just grateful for this rather concise prayer that the Apostle Paul offered on behalf of Colossians. And we can glean from this prayer and pray for one another. Pray for Eastridge Church. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for neighboring churches in this community. Father, that we would live out the truth. We would not only know about Christ, that we would know Christ. And we would walk with him. We would recognize at every step of the way that we were delivered from the domain of sin, destruction, and wrath. And we were brought into the kingdom of beloved Son of God. We are grateful, Lord, and I pray that you would continue to grow us and mature us as we seek to be filled with the knowledge of your will and seek to walk in obedience to you. I pray that you bless the congregation, bless every brother and sister, and I especially pray that for those who are still under the domain of darkness, that they would come by faith and seek the redemption because the price was paid, even for them, that they would embrace that forgiveness by faith as they turn away from their sins. We ask these things for Jesus' Jesus' name and for his glorious name and that he would continue to be exalted in our daily lives. Amen.